0: Take out your Bible and open once again to John's Gospel, chapter 3. John, chapter 3, where we have been spending the past month or so just contemplating this encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus and how, again, I echo the words of J.C. Ryle, who said that to be a Christian, you don't have to know everything. We're not saved by knowledge. But to be a Christian, you do have to know certain things. And he says John chapter 3 is one of those things you have to know and you have to live in light of, otherwise you can't be saved. And it's not just Ryle waving the banner on this. This is Jesus waving that same banner to Nicodemus. Because to Nicodemus he says, truly, truly, I say to you, in spite of everything you have and everything you've accomplished and all your religion, I'm telling you, you must be born again. You must hear these words, Nicodemus. You must listen. And you must respond appropriately. Otherwise, you will not enter the kingdom of God. So we spent the past several weeks looking at this exchange between our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the religious man, Nicodemus. And now in John chapter 3, we've come to what many consider the greatest verse in all the Bible. If I were to poll the room, what is the most famous verse in the Bible? No doubt John 3, 16 would be uh, at or very near the top of the list. I think it's one of those verses uh, we have all learned probably very early in life at vacation bible school or in children's church growing up or in your homes and there's a good reason why that's one of those foundational verses we learn there is so much truth that is packed into that one verse the great reformer martin luther said about john 3:16 it is the bible in miniature it's the whole of the bible in miniature and what he means by that is just as the bible reveals to us the nature of God, reveals to us who we are, it reveals to us God's plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. So too, John 3.16, the Bible in miniature likewise reveals to us the glory of God in the salvation of a soul through Jesus Christ. John 3.16 reveals to us how the greatness of God meets the greatness of our need. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 is the Bible in miniature. And the Bible is about God. John 3.16 is about God. We live in a day today where there's some confusion about that. It would seem that in recent generations the focus of John 3:16 has shifted away from God to man. John 3:16, what people tend to be most passionate about John 3:16 as a little phrase we find in there, whosoever will. And John 3:16 has become a proof text for arguing for the salvation of anyone Anywhere, anytime. Because John 3.16 says, Whosoever will. And we'll certainly be giving attention to that over the course of the next couple of weeks. But church, John 3.16 is not about you. It's not about me. John 3.16 is not about the will of man. And that will become clear in the coming weeks. John 3.16 is about God. The focus of John 3.16 is, is on the glory of God in salvation. I was telling some this morning that the message I'm preaching this morning was originally intended to be, even this time last week, intending to be verses 16 through 21. That was uh, what I anticipated preaching through today. And then as the week went on towards about Thursday, I was like, I don't think I'm going to get off verse 16. And then by yesterday, I was like, I'm not sure I'm going to get past the first two lines of verse 16. So we're going to spend a couple of weeks together here in John 3, 16, in an ongoing sermon that's entitled, The Glory of God and Salvation. The Glory of God and Salvation. Sadly, this text has become so familiar to Christians today. And through a preoccupation, again, with that phrase, the the will of man, whosoever will in it, that we hardly even think about God when we come to John 3.16. We hardly think about the glory and the wonder of God that's revealed here. And so this morning and for the next couple of weeks, I want to attempt to renew our gaze upon the wonder and the beauty of God in John 3.16. So my prayer for you, my prayer for myself, my prayer for us, and I pray our prayer together would be that God would help us to put off our casual familiarities with John 3.16 and open our eyes to ponder and to behold again the wonder of, for God so loved the world. Let's look together at the text. I'm going to begin reading in this sermon on the glory of God and salvation from John 3.16. We're going to begin reading in John chapter 2, verse 23, and I'll read through our text. Let's look together at the Word of God. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now when he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, we thank you for your word and the revelation of yourself to us. Father, thank you this morning for reminding us that we are not the main character of the Bible. This this book we hold in our hands this morning is not fundamentally about us. It's about you. It's about your glory. It's about what Jesus prayed in John 17. It's about your glory being spread in the hearts and lives of your church. It's about your church being enamored with you and all that you are. And in mercy and grace and love, all that you've done for your enemies. And drawing them to yourself, adopting them into your family through the life, death, and resurrection of your own beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning, Father, that you would open our eyes to behold more of the wonder of your glory. In the context of John John 3.16, the glory that you possess in the salvation of an undeserving soul. Father, humble our hearts, redirect our focus away from ourselves, and put it on Christ. We pray this not only for ourselves, but Father, even this morning as other churches are meeting together, we pray that eyes would be fixed on your glory and captivated by your radiance revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you would be so pleased to even through this, draw empty souls, dead souls to life in you. Father, do this work of grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at John 3, 16, but we begin reading in John chapter 2, verses 23. Why? Because I pray we're beginning to understand Context matters. I was having a discussion with somebody just this morning who came up to me and in preparing for this morning's message said, I had no idea that John 3.16 came in the context of Jesus' words to Nicodemus. And I promise you, this person is not alone in that. It is not by accident that John 3.16 comes on the heels of John 3.15 and all that has gone on before this. So, we do run a little bit of a risk of redundancy, but it is absolutely necessary. In order to rightly understand John 3.16, if we're, if we're going to undermine our propensity to make John 3.16 about us, then we've got to understand it in its context, which is why we began reading all the way back in chapter 2, verses 23, where you will recall Jesus has begun his public ministry and he has garnered a following right? He's done the the miracle of the changing the water into wine. He's cleared out the temple and he's garnered a following. And you read chapter two, verse 23, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And again, I hope we've rehearsed this ad nauseum, but I hope you see initially we look at that and say, amen, praise the Lord, but not so fast. What does verse 24 say? But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. What does that mean? He means he didn't save them. He didn't entrust himself. Why, God, that's so cruel, that's so mean. What's going on? Verse 24 and 25, he knew all people. He knows all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. Why? Because he knows what's in man. He's God. He has a perfect knowledge, not of what just people say with their lips, but of what they have in their hearts. Exhibit A of this is Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him by night saying all the right things, calling him the right titles, professing the right things. In fact, as we've said, if any of our friends came to us and said to us the things that Nicodemus said about Jesus, we would say, oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. I mean, I've, I've been concerned about your soul, but hearing the right things you've said about Jesus, I know, I, we believe the same things. I know you're a believer. And yet Jesus says, you've said all the right things. Nicodemus, come here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. How can Jesus say this? Chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Jesus knows what's in the heart. He knows what's there. And he knows that that Nicodemus is not enchanted or entranced by Jesus of Nazareth. He knows right things. Nicodemus was a Sunday school teacher. Nicodemus was a religious leader. Nicodemus had been a student and a teacher of the Old Testament. And yet, he's not going into the kingdom of heaven. Because in his heart, he had not been born again. Or as we've seen in recent weeks, born from above. We looked at chapter 3, verses 1 through 15 over a series of weeks, looking at the necessity of being born again, being born from above, that salvation is not based upon anything you do. And I've stood up here week after week and held up my hands, and this is zero up here, because this is what Jesus says to Nicodemus. For all you've accomplished, all you've done, all your Bible reading, all your quiet times, all your devotional, all your church attendance, everything you've done, good news for you, it doesn't matter, it doesn't count one thing as far as your entrance into the kingdom of heaven. you If anyone is going to be entered the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again, born from above, birthed by the Spirit of God, the necessity of being born again. Then secondly, we looked at the impossibility of being born again, born from above, by our own works, by our own merits. And here, Jesus, we spent a couple of weeks here. Jesus just takes Nicodemus and shakes him. And everything that Nicodemus would have claimed was his the evidence that he had a right standing with God and would have a place in the eternal kingdom, Jesus just kind of shook them all loose and kind of kicked them off to the ground away and said, none of it, none of it matters. Not your good works, not your religion, nothing. Now, Nicodemus, you're laid bare. You're naked before me, spiritually. And you have no hope. It is impossible for you to have a standing before me and a place in the kingdom through anything you've done. And that's been a sobering message for some of us. We've had discussions outside of this, some of us, about that. It's been a needed message that being born from a is a work of God in the heart of man. And we saw last week the lifted up Christ as the means of the new birth just as the, the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, the brazen bronze serpent, as a, a remedy, a healing for people in the wilderness after they've been stung and bitten by those poisonous snakes, so too Christ Jesus lifted up on the cross as the only hope of the new birth, of being born again. You must look to Jesus. And even your faith in repentance is not what you do to get into the kingdom of God. Faith and repentance is the work of God in your soul that opens your eyes to behold the beauty of Christ, to see Him out of the overflow of that, to repent and profess faith in Him. So this is where we've been for the past several weeks. And now we come to John 3, 16. How can these things be? We're still in the context of Nicodemus. Jesus is still talking to Nicodemus here. How can all these things you've just told me, which Nicodemus is confused by, how can these things be? Jesus gives him the answer. The answer, Nicodemus, is the greatness of God. The answer is the glory of God. In salvation. Nicodemus, don't look to yourself to try to accomplish this. Nicodemus, don't try to figure out what the answer, how can this be? How can this take place? It's the glory of God. And in John 3.16, we see at least three ways God is glorified in the salvation of a soul. John 3.16, it's about God. We'll look at the first of these this morning. The glory of God in salvation revealed in the greatness of God's love. This will be today's message, and it's just one of the things we see here in John 3, 16. How can this be? God is how this can be. God is how. For God does something. So love the world. The glory of God in salvation revealed in the greatness of God's love. There's three things I want us to consider under this heading of the glory of God in salvation revealed in the greatness of His love. Are you with me on on this? Number one, the greatness of God's love is seen first in who He is. The greatness of God's love is seen first in who He is. Look at verse 16. It simply says, for God. God is the subject, grammatically, of this verse. He's the theme of it. Which in the context of John chapter 3, makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because Nicodemus, Jesus has been telling Nicodemus, it's not through anything you do, it's not your works of righteousness, it's not your religion, so then How? For God, He's the one who does it. For God, the, the subject of this great statement we find in verse 16 is God. And before we address the action, what God does, just stop right there. This is what I spoke of at the beginning, that we, we've lost the, the grandeur of just who God is in the salvation of a soul. Before we consider what God does, think about, just look at that, those three letters, God. Think about who this is that's going to be doing everything we know that's about to come. Who is this God? Well, at the most basic fundamental level, we can say he's the creator, right? He's the maker of all things, including you and I. And as the creator and us as the creation, that creates a great distance, doesn't it? Right? We are the creation Can we create like the Creator does? No. So immediately, just the very fundamental categories of Creator and creation has created a gulf, a massive gulf between who He is and who we are. Now, it's one thing to acknowledge that there is some distance between us and God, but I think Scripture goes to great lengths to provide us a measure so that we can begin to somewhat understand how great that distance is between the creator and the creation. And there's various ways we can look at this. But I want to look at it under two headings, the, the gulf that exists between who God is and we are, because this is important. If we can get this right now, all of a sudden, John three sixteen becomes massive for the glory of God. If the gulf between me and God is like this, well, then the work that was necessary to bridge that gap wasn't very much. But if I come to a right understanding of who God is and a right understanding of who I am and I understand there's an eternal gulf there, now the work of God and the salvation of a soul is immensely glorious, isn't it? And that's the point. There are two categories of mankind that can help us create that appropriate gulf between us and God. First is an understanding that man is finite that man is finite. And by finite, we just mean we're limited, right? We can look around. Maybe even this morning, you feel limited, right? Maybe your body's hurting, you're aching. I'm battling some sinus and sore throat things right here. I'm feeling limits. I'm sure you're feeling limits in one degree or another. We are limited. We're limited in physically. We're limited in our knowledge. Amen. We're limited in our power. We're limited in... All aspects of our being. There's just, we can't do everything. We're, very, we're dependent upon God for our very existence. This morning, we, we do this often. That breath you take right now, you're dependent upon God to provide the air, to provide your lungs the capacity to work appropriately. We're not often conscious of this, but we are always dependent upon God. We are finite, but God, is He finite? What's the opposite of finite? Infinite, right? Infinite. God has no limits, no boundaries, no beginning, no end. God's knowledge, perfect. His knowledge of you, isn't that what Jesus says in John 2, 23, 24? I know what's in people's hearts. I know perfectly. God's knowledge is perfect, not only of the individual, but every human who has ever lived. Every thought, every word, every deed, every intention of the heart, he knows it perfectly. Of the gazillions of people who've ever lived, his knowledge is perfect. And he never forgets a thing. He never forgets. In his fullness, he's everywhere at all times. God is uh, omnipresent. Don't think of it like a sheet spread out across the universe, meaning he's spread out and covered. No, in every point of the universe you have the fullness of God, fullness of God, fullness of God. It's not his glory spread out. So over here you get this part of his glory. Over here you get it is the full. He is everywhere fully. Your mind begins to explode, doesn't it? As you're trying to contemplate these things. He is outside of time meaning he invented time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's eternal. He's all-powerful. His power knows no limits. He's free, meaning he's capable of doing anything and everything he pleases, whenever he pleases, however he wants to do so. We talk about in our generation today, our rights as man. Well, there are certain rights that our nation gives to us, but understand we have no rights. We're a creation. There's only one who has rights, and that's the creator. He's the only one who has rights to do whatever he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it. Because he's God, the self-existent, all-existent, dependent upon nothing but himself, God. Psalm chapter 8, the psalmist does what we're trying to do right now. Contemplates the majesty of God's greatness. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... So get the picture here. The psalmist is just looking at the expanse of creation. When I look at these things, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? What's he saying there? In the vastness of this universe, humanity is just so insignificant. I mean, we're like ants. In, in, in comparison to the vastness of, of great... How many of you, when you left your house this morning, you were walking out? noticed the ants on the ground. Did you take time to acknowledge them? Good morning, Mr. and Ms. Ant. Good morning, family. Excuse me, I want to make sure I don't... Did you acknowledge ants as you were getting in your vehicle this morning or as you were walking through the parking lot? Why? They're insignificant. They're nothing. That's what the psalmist is saying about us. What is man that you're mindful of him when I contemplate who you are and what your hands have done? Over in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. Turn over there with me for just a moment. I promise you this is significant to John three sixteen. Isaiah chapter 40. God is speaking here about his own greatness. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. We're just going to read for a little bit. So, tremble before the word of God. God asks, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? What waters is he talking about there? The oceans of the world. (laughs) All the oceans. He asks, Who has measured the all the oceans. What's the hollow of your hand? That little spot right there. Who can measure all the oceans of the world, put them all together, and they fit right here? That's a massive hand, isn't it? Stay with him. And marked off the heavens with a span. What's a span? Any idea? There, I see it there. If You spread it up. Yeah. You spread out your hand from your Thumb to your pinky there. That's the idea of a span there. And the question is, and who marked off the heavens? That's talking about the expanse of the galaxies that we in the 21st century are still exploring. Every day, finding it goes further and further and further than we ever imagined. Who is the one who measures that which we still can't find the boundaries of with this right here? This is a massive, anthropomorphically speaking, massive individual, right? Measure all the waters of the world right there and the universe with this. Let's just keep reading for a minute and just tremble. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in a scale? I used to work in a grocery store. And part of those duties, which I probably wasn't as diligent to do as I should have done man was working in the produce department. They had these little scales. They hung up there. And, you know, it's got like a round scale. It's got a little bowl underneath it. And the idea is you pick up some bananas. You, you pay by the pound, right? So you go and you stick that banana in the scale. And you see, okay, I've got a pound of bananas. So you're going to pay whatever a pound of bananas is. Part of your duties as a produce man is every once in a while I need to go clean out that, you know, the dust in there. And the idea here, you know, I think the thing that always struck me is, I mean, I get the cleanliness thing, but again, a banana is covered in a peeling. People won't eat that. So, what does it matter? What does that, what, what weight does that dust add to the weight of those bananas? It's insignificant, isn't it? It's nothing. Right? It's just dust. And yet here, the picture is, who has weighed the mountains in those scales? This is a massive scale. Someone who is able to take all the mountains of the world and put them on that scale and measure them and say, they're just like, it's just like dust to me. The mountains, they're they're like dust to me because I'm so great and Glorious. Verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who did the creator of the world ask? Hmm, I want to make sure I build this rightly. Who did he consult? Nobody. Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. You Get the picture of greatness? So the question comes, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver change. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told from you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. So it moves up a little bit from ants. But you get the idea. Did you acknowledge the grasshoppers this morning? Probably not. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes, kings, rulers, all those scary people you see on TV? Who brings them to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Just rots them out. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he, who, this big giant here, he's talking about God, when he blows on them. And big, bad, scary guys, they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. God asks, to whom then will you compare me? Who's like me? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these things? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of His might, and because He is strong in power, not one is missing. We could have gone anywhere in the Bible to pull out God's extravagant revelation of Himself. These are just two passages where He contrasts Himself with things that We know, and we're like, holy smokes. This God is so much greater. Now back to John 3.16. When you read, for God so loved the world. Do you picture the God of Psalm 8? Of Isaiah 40? Because this is who God is. Right from the outset, when we read, for God, our jaws ought to drop. Salvation is from the Lord, and this God is doing something in verse 16. But keep in mind who this one is. Now, what are we asking here? What are we thinking about? We're we're thinking about the gap that exists between who God is and we are. And one of the categories we're just looking at here is we are finite, but God is infinite. And it's this infinite God who is doing something for ants, grasshoppers, nobody. Let's talk about a second category here. How the greatness of God, the greatness of his love is seen in who he is. Number one, he is finite. Number two, or excuse me, he is infinite. Man is finite. Number two, finite man is sinful. This makes verse 16 all the more glorious to God. Because man whom he does this for is not just finite, But he's sinful. That is to say, Romans 3.23, all have sinned against this God. The wages have sinned against him. The wages of our sin is death. God is holy. We are not. Most of us are well aware that ever since Genesis chapter 3, there exists a hostility between God and man, between the Creator and His creation. God is holy, man is sinful. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 9 says, But your iniquities, your sin have separated you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you. So when we read in John 3.16 that God is doing something for the world, we ought to read, holy cow, this is unexpected. This is surprising. Why? Because I'm a sinner and He's not. And my sin has separated me from him. Colossians 1.21, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaging in evil deeds. That's who we are. This is the dynamic between the creator and his creation ever since Genesis chapter 3. And this is what's going on between God and Nicodemus, between Jesus and Nicodemus and Genesis, uh, uh, John chapter 3. There is sin in Nicodemus' heart. There is hatred for God inside of Nicodemus, even though he's very religious. Nicodemus doesn't see it. Jesus sees it because why? Chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. He knows what's in everybody's heart. And Nicodemus' sin has alienated himself from God. Nicodemus is hostile to God. He's not looking to God. He's trying to do it himself. He's rejected God. He's trying to earn God's favor through himself. And just like Nicodemus, we're the same way. We are sinners before God. He's holy. We're not. Psalm 8 is an appropriate question to ask. What is man that you are mindful of him? Not just because you're great and we're small, but because you're holy and we're not. You created us for you and we told you, go away, die, we hate you. What is man that you would be mindful of him? Because we are sinful. Do you see? Do you see how if God does anything in John 3, 16, it is not about us. It's in spite of us. It is all to His glory. Why, God, would you look down upon us in any kind of mercy and grace and love? You so loved you, God. So loved the world. There's a great gulf that exists between God and us. And we see it everywhere. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah's vision right there upon the throne. He he looks up and he sees in Isaiah chapter 6. He sees God on the throne, Christ on the throne. And what is it? What's the dynamic that we see here? I want to just read it. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. That's Jesus Christ sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Those are angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. And one called to another, these angels around the throne, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. Not just once, three times. It's kind of declaring exclamationally, there's never been one like this. This is one of a kind. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Why? Because He's the transcendent God, great and glorious. He's so pure and holy in righteousness that these angels who are not sinful have to cover themselves in his presence. They can't look upon him directly. He is so far majestic in splendor, even beyond the angels, that they have to cover themselves. And because of this glorious sight, what does Isaiah reflexively, intrinsically, what's his response to the glory of God on display there. What is it? He covers his mouth. He cries out, woe is me, I am undone. What's he saying? The gulf between where you are and I am is immense, it's massive. And he's coming undone because he's a sinner. In the presence of a holy God, My eyes have seen the glory, Isaiah says. And in that, you're getting a taste of what? The distance that exists between infinite God, infinite holy God, and finite sinful man. Would you expect a God like this to do anything favorable? For a people like that? Would you expect that? There's no reason to. There's absolutely no reason whatsoever for a God like this to be favorable to a people like this. Holy, infinite, perfect, unholy, finite. Hate Him. But John 3.16, in fulfillment of everything God has said to Nicodemus previously, says that God in grace and mercy, unlike us, notices the ants on the ground. He takes notice of the grasshoppers. And when the Lord begins this statement to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world, Immediately, we should tremble. Immediately, we should fall down on our knees and cry out, How? How is this possible? How might it be that a God like that would love the world? And we're going to find the world in just a minute. We would expect, for God, uh-oh, this can only be bad, right? A God like this, us down here, If He's for God was unconcerned with us dust particles called humanity who rejected against him. That, that would make sense to us. For God poured out his wrath upon these poor grasshoppers who rebelled against him. That, something like that would make sense if we're thinking rightly about for God, who God is. But that's not what we find. So we've been arguing for the point here, the glory of God in salvation is seen first and foremost in who God is. But we can also say in the greatness of his love, seen in who he is. The glory of God in salvation is revealed in the greatness of His love toward the object of His love. For who it is He loves. The greatness of His love, which reveals His glory in salvation, is seen in the object of His love. For God, and this is where Nicodemus' jaw would have hit the floor, for God... So loved the world. Some of us are in the process of memorizing Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 and 2. And there, God speaking to Isaiah says that, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Get the picture, just another one of those images of the greatness of God. The earth is my footstool. But here we're told that this great God condescends so amazingly, he comes down in love for the world. Now, we've got to define that term world. Because every one of us, we're just trained. When we hear the world, we think about the big ball, blue ball that we see in space. Going all the way back to John chapter 1, where John kind of sets the, sets the terms for everything he's going to be talking about there. He talked about the world. And so we've, we've already addressed this, but it's good to review here. When we talk about the world, we tend to talk about the big ball and everything in it, everyone in it. When we talk about the world, we tend to think about it numerically. We tend to think about it in terms of uh, the people in the world. God so loved all the people of the world who've ever lived and ever existed. And so we, we immediately come to John 3.16. We read that and we immediately pour into it that God's love is big, it's roomy, it's expensive, it's, it's a love for everyone everywhere. And there might be elements of truth to that. I'm not saying there's not. But I am saying that's not what John is saying here. Going all the way back to John chapter 1 and even all the way. Some things Jesus is going to say to his disciples later on in John's gospel. He's going to tell them, do not love the world. (laughs) Wait a minute. In John 3, 16, God loves the world. And then later on in John's gospel, he's going to say, do not love the world. What is going on there? Schizophrenic much? No. We need to understand that in John's gospel, he's not thinking numerically about a big number of people. In John's world. The idea of the world is ethical. It's moral. Its emphasis is not on the bigness and a whole bunch of people. That tends to be when people talk about, use this verse, proof text it to make their own arguments about salvation. They pour into it how we think about it. We didn't author it. (laughs) The Spirit inspired John. And John is very consistent throughout his gospel. He uses the world, not focused upon its bigness or the individuals of it. His focus is always on the badness of it, the immorality of it. That the world is a system that is opposed to God. It's a way to talk about humanity, every human, not numerically, but morally. Every human in rebellion to God. Now, all of a sudden, the glory of God is on display. Not that for God so loved a whole bunch of people, everyone who ever lived on the planet. That's a whole other discussion. John's point is, God, infinite, holy, righteous, hates sin, so loved a system that was in rebellion to him so loved a system, a world that he had made that had gone rogue against him. What's stunning here, again, the world is not us, like numerically. What's stunning here is that this God that we've just been thinking about loved a world that did not love him. That's the glory of God on display. God is loving a world that hates him, that despises him, that does not love him. The word world has to do with how bad we are. And that's why later on, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, but Jesus is going to turn around and tell his disciples, do not love the world. Don't be entrenched by the world. Don't let the world suck you in to its badness, to its immorality, to, things, to its hatred of me. Does it make sense? Now, you've got to be consistent here. Because if, if you're going to make John 3.16 about the number of people, then when Jesus says, don't love the world, he's telling them, don't love a bunch of people. John uses this consistently. It was true in chapter one. It's true in chapter three. It's going to be true all throughout. The world is the badness of the world toward God. The world treasures other things more than God. The world wants to love other things, not God. The world doesn't trust God. The world doesn't worship God. The world doesn't want God. And Jesus is going to tell his disciples, don't get caught up in that. But in amazing grace, God loved this world. The Apostle Paul expresses this same truth in Romans chapter 5, verses 7-8. One will scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still bad, while we were still the world, while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. God showed his love. He gets the glory. And that he showed love while we hated him through the death of Christ. John 3:16. It's about the glory of God. How do you explain that? There is no explanation for such grace. It's one thing to even say God is mindful of humanity, holy, infinite, righteous, perfect God, that He's even mindful of unholy, finite, hate Him people. But it doesn't say He's mindful. It says He loves that world so much that He's going to do something that will blow your mind. It is, before we close this morning, important for us to ask why. Why? Why would a God like this love a people like us who are inherently haters of God, lovers of the world, lovers of self, haters of Christ? Going back to John chapter 1, Christ's God sent His Son into the world, and the world rejected Him. Why? We love the darkness. We hate the light. Why would God love this world? I can save you a little bit of time. You can search the Scriptures for an answer to that question, and you will never find this answer. You will never find God so loved the world because there was something lovable in the world. You won't find it. You'll never find God so loved the world because there was something worthy in the world. You won't find that. What you will find is this God loves because He loves. And you're just going to have to sit and ponder and contemplate that. What we're saying there is there is no reason. There is no explanation for this. God loves because he loves. God loves who he loves because he loves who he loves. There is no explanation for it. And that is to the glory of God. In the Old Testament, We're told that God loved Israel, right? Why? Was there something good in Israel? Was there something better about Israel than there was all the other nations of the world? Please answer that correctly. No, there was not. There was nothing. Israel worshiped false gods. They had false idols. They turned their back on God over and over and over and over again. And nevertheless, God faithfully covenanted to love them in spite of their rebellion towards him. Why? Well, Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8 might help. God said through Moses to the assembled people of Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other people in the world that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. He just kind of snuffed that one out right away. Why does he love Israel? It really has nothing to do with you. It is because why did the lord love you it is because the lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers (laughs) that's the explanation why did he love israel because the lord loved israel because he's god his ways are perfect his reasons fit into his plans and purposes The Lord set His love on Israel according to Deuteronomy 7 verse 8 simply because He loved Israel. He chose to love Israel in a way that He did not love Egypt or Babylon or any of the other nations of the world in that day. He loved because He's God. And one of God's attributes is His love. When you hear the love of God, you've got to refrain from thinking in terms of warm, fuzzy, the way we love. I love my mom. Oh, I just, my heart flutters. I love my wife. My heart flutters. That is, God's heart does not flutter for anyone but himself. The love of God has to do not with, oh, you're just so special to me. It is for his glory. Out of his love for himself. He's acting favorably, in a way that isn't deserved. He loves. Why? Because he loves. Because it's who he is. And that's not the only thing he is. He's also righteous and just and a God of wrath. And that's the incomprehensibility of God. He's all those things simultaneously. Loving and And wrath, merciful and righteous, gracious and just. If you think categorically, those things are opposed to each other, right? You can't be merciful and at the same time just unless you're God. And those things weave perfectly together. And so this is the beginning steps of us returning to a right understanding of John 3:16 in the context of Jesus' words to Nicodemus you must be born again Nicodemus it's not your theology it's not your right beliefs it's not you being able to say to other people right things about Jesus John 2:23 through 25 Jesus knows what's in your heart Nicodemus you must be born again you must be born from above You must be born through what God has provided through his son, Jesus. How can this be? Well, we'll at least begin to say this. It has nothing to do, Nicodemus, with anything you do. It is for God so loved, sinful world, that he gave his only begotten son. And that will be the next part of the glory of God in the salvation of a soul. I hope you're beginning to see John three sixteen. It's not about you and me. We get to reap some benefits by God's grace, but it's about God and the wonder of God's work of salvation in the soul of man. Now, you may be here this morning, and Nicodemus was a proud man. Nicodemus was the one who was constantly trying to, I don't need to hear this. Someone else may need to hear this, but I've got my works, I've got my righteousness, I've got my religion. And that's why Jesus is so adamant to clear everything out. And if that's you this morning, then I pray the Spirit of God will continue His work upon your soul of just stripping you bare of everything. Because there's only one way into the kingdom of God, and it is Jesus Christ clinging to Jesus. But there may be some in here this morning, you recognize that you have the DNA of the world. The badness of the world. You recognize your sinfulness against a God so holy, so righteous. And you may be struggling with, I don't know if God would save one like me. The wonder of John 3.16 again is that you're not the top, you're not the subject of John 3.16. If God's love were going to be on the basis of your earning it, you got every reason to tremble. But what we've seen already from John 3.16 is salvation is of God. It's from above. And he is surprisingly, amazingly, incomprehensibly loving to a world that is in rebellion to him. Some of us are currently reading through Pilgrim's Progress. And we've been watching the main character, pilgrim or Christian. He's carrying this big burden on his back, huge burden. And that burden is his guilt over his sin. And one of the characters asks him, hey, where did you get this from? He says, well, I've got this book in my hand. It's come from the book, and the book is the Bible. He says, and as I read this, the book is, this is growing bigger. Because why? The the book reveals the holiness of God. Right view of God leads to a right view of self, and uh uh-oh, I'm in big trouble. And this character, Evangelist, comes to him. And Evangelist says, listen, let me point you in the right direction. There is a way to get rid of that burden, that guilt, that feeling of, I'm going to die like this. That no one, he says, look ahead. Do you see that wicked gate up ahead? Wicked, not wicked, wicked. Do you see that wicked gate, gate up ahead? And Christian initially says, no, I don't see it. An evangelist says, well, do you see the light up ahead? He says, yes, I see the light. An evangelist says to him, keep your eyes on the light. Keep your eyes. Now, the light is the word of God. Now, he's got the book that's the word of God, but the light is the, uh, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The wicked gate is Christ in Pilgrim's uh, Progress. And so what we have here is Christian has this burden on his back. He's guilty. He knows he's guilty. He's overcome. He can't find salvation in himself. And he doesn't know what to do. And Evangelist says, do you see Christ, the wicked gate? He says, no. Well, do you see the light, the word of God? Yeah, yeah, I've got it right here, the word of God. Keep there. Keep there. And that book, that light will drive you to the wicked gate to Christ. And this morning, as we think about salvation is born from above. And you're feeling the weight of guilt. And maybe like Nicodemus, you're, well, what do you want me to do, Jake? I mean, I've heard you countless say, it has nothing to do with my repentance, nothing to do with my faith, nothing to do with my baptism. Well, that just shatters at my every understanding of the gospel. What do I do? John three sixteen. For God. So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Here's what you do. My job is to be evangelist in this dynamic. Do you see Christ? Kind of, sort of. I mean, I hear you talk about him, but I don't think about him the way you do. I mean, you use all these colorful pictures. I mean, I agree, but I think you're a little fanatical about it personally. Fine. Do you have the book? Yeah. Well, The book will point you to the beauty, the majesty, the glory, the brilliance, the radiance of Christ. You've got that burden. You've got that guilt. You wonder if it might be possible. Cling to the book. Daily. Cling to this. This book will lead you to Christ. And here's what we know about God in Christ Jesus. He's kind and merciful and gracious. Surprisingly so. That's what John 3.16 is. This God Has amazingly so loved the world, he gave Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, the relief of our burden, and that what Jesus prays in John 17, that our eyes may behold the glory of God. If you're here this morning, neither Jesus nor I intend for you to just wallow in despair. I don't know what to do. You have the book. Everything we've said for the past month has come line by line from here. Go back to this. Go back to where this is pointing you. Take your burden with you. And know that the God who will meet you there in Jesus Christ is merciful and loving beyond comprehension. Where are you this morning? It may be even as a true believer, you're here and you've been through that wicked gate. But maybe it's been a rough week and you've got that burden of sin on your shoulders. How is it between your soul and the book? It constantly points you to Christ. Run to Him. He's more loving and gracious. He is holy. He is infinite. But He's also surprisingly loving and merciful and gracious. Run to him. Run now.